Mark chapter 8. There's uh, lots of little bits in Mark chapter 8, and the commentators would uh, talk about it as a a kind of revision. Not the exam itself, because obviously that's going to come as we head towards Jerusalem and that very first Easter and even beyond that, but it's a, a bit of a revision, a bit of a chance for the disciples to uh, decide whether they've got it or not, a uh, bit of a chance for Jesus to certainly point out that the Pharisees don't have it, and then questions that we looked at a couple of weeks ago about who the identity of this Jesus was. We have uh, 4,000 people fed early on, and that's the second time it's happened um, in Mark's gospel. Um, then we have the Pharisees and the little bit that we read together wanting a sign for the generation, as if the signs that Jesus were doing didn't seem to be enough. Jesus then said to the disciples, um, uh, beware of the dangers of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. That little bit in the batch of bread that's going to send it all wrong. And I guess uh, very quickly, um, we could look at that for a long time, but we dealt a wee bit with the Pharisees last week, so we'll not linger there too long. But that self-indulgent self-righteousness, the holiness that fed their own self-righteousness, but didn't feed the rest of the world. Then there's this debate about the loaf and the boat and the fact that was Jesus angry because they hadn't brought bread after he's just fed 4,000 people? Um, A bit of a strange debate for sure. There's the healing of the blind man that seems to take a couple of sort of, first he just sees trees and then it becomes a little clearer to him. And then this last section from uh, that we probably know it best in Luke chapter 9 that we thought about a couple of weeks ago, that question that Jesus eventually asks them, who do you say that I am? I'm going to just come in and out of a couple of these things over the course of the next, the next little while, not too long, um, and then maybe bring us to the conclusion that maybe um, it's where Tom Wright took it in, in his book. And um, as I've gone through the commentaries um, in Mark, his hasn't been the one that I've spent most time in, but he, he sent off an image in this one in, in Mark chapter 8 that I think might be helpful, not only for the passage, but maybe more importantly for where we are, six months into the new ministry of uh, the boy in the black at the front. So let me just get there by a couple other things and then come to that conclusion that hopefully will lead us towards the Lord's table. The signs, a generation asking for signs, the Pharisees needing signs, as if Jesus and what he'd been doing that had caused them all this fuss, because every time he seemed to do a sign, they were after him. Um, They still want signs. And, And Jesus doesn't seem to be keen to just give signs for sign's sake. And there's a good lesson there. Uh, Donald English in his commentary said, not contriving situations to prove himself. Jesus wasn't out there saying, right, let me prove to these people who I am. He was out there being who God is, bringing people into the heart of God uh, to probably sides of his ministry in these first eight chapters that we've seen as a subversive trying to break the status quo of the way it was around him in society, and secondly, the redemptive, where he was healing people, restoring people to their full humanity. Jesus was about that rather than just showing signs for signs' sake. And I guess in a late 20th century and early 21st century Christian church, we have to be very careful 
that we're not out there for signs and that we don't do party tricks and confuse them with signs of God. And we can talk about that at all kinds of levels. I'm not denying for a moment that some of us, maybe even here, have experienced the healing touch of God. But when it becomes some kind of sign, some kind of thing that we have to do in order to prove that God exists, maybe we're misusing uh, just exactly what the Holy Spirit is in those kinds of ways, contriving ways. Other things that we've done, there was a period of time at the end of the 20th century when it seemed that a Christian rock band had to get to number one on the pop charts in order to somehow show that Jesus was relevant to the society that we're living in. Some kind of sign that there was enough Christians to fill Wembley Stadium in a worship event, so therefore, oh, look at us. Ways that we've maybe just contrived to show the power of Christ, rather than gone about the following of Jesus, which in our everyday experience will maybe more quietly than sensationally reveal the power of Christ. Jesus himself wasn't up for headlines. He was one who really didn't put posters up, but if 4,000 people came, he fed them. So we've got to be careful. English goes on to say, God will take care of the signs if we go about following who Jesus is. The rock band U2, to be fair, I haven't quoted them half as much in the first six months as you expect it, but they have a wonderful song called Crumbs from Your Table that was written about the church in the West and the whole scenario of the AIDS uh, dilemma and debate. And they sing, you speak of signs and wonders, I need something other. I would believe if I was able, but I'm waiting for crumbs from your table. A third world who desperately need us to respond to the needs that they have, whether that's in health or education or food or various other ways, and they're not looking for sensational signs like the Pharisees were looking for. They're looking for everyday signs like tonight, bringing some clues so that Connor can give them to embrace so that the people on the streets around us will have some clothes to wear. That's the sign and wonder that they're looking for. It's not sensational, but it shows people and reveals people the heart of God. And then, of course, the Pharisees are the only ones not getting it, because this debate in the boat about loaves and whatever it is, and some commentators, let me tell you, they go into this in some intricate detail, and fascinatingly point out how many times in these first eight chapters that bread gets a mention and that food gets a mention and linking it back to the manna and the Exodus story and all kinds of other stuff. But it would seem to me, and it's very simplest, that here they are in a boat going somewhere with only one loaf after Jesus has done these miraculous things with bread. And they're worried that he's angry that they have only one loaf. Do you get it, he says? Are you hard-hearted? Are you not getting what this is about. Now, of course, we'll be another six or seven chapters in, and he'll still be wondering about that. But this is a chance of revision. Look back. See what I've been doing. And this is where I think it gets interesting, because when it comes to this confession, who do you say that I am, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and then the cost of what it is to be a disciple, it seems to me that Wright might be onto something, because what he's doing here, he's saying, Look, guys, are you getting it? Because if you look ahead of you, the white water part of the river is down there. 
uh, we've got to decide, are we going to get down into the white water part of the river? You can bail out and go up the side and look at it, or you can go for it with all the danger that that is. And for the disciples, this is important because the disciples are heading to a white water scenario that they could never have dreamt of, but Jesus starts to lay it out for them. He predicts his death. He talks about the cost it's going to be for himself. He talks about the cost it's going to be for them. It's almost like he's in revision. And then he's saying, now, if you do get it, are you up for it? Are you ready? In the first time last week, people get ready. There was a sense in the choosing of it, a sense in the singing of it, that maybe just around us here in Fitzroy, there's a few green shoots beginning to appear. And just that maybe we're heading towards something. And we need to realize, as we're doing as a session and development teams, we went away to Helen's Bay for what I call the Helen's Bay Summit. It's um, at least one way to describe it. And we went there to work out what do we need in these next five, ten years to be the church that we're being called to be in these next five or ten years. And I can't help but talking, as I did to session the other night, that really in the midst of that, all of us, including the minister, the minister's wife, children, all of us have got to come back to what Jesus says here, the motto that I'm using for it for myself, for us as a session, and then further down into the church, is that little phrase taken out of what Jesus says to them. Deny yourself daily. We're not here for me. I'm not in Fitzroy for me. You're not here in Fitzroy for you. We're here as Fitzroy for those who we want to reach, for those who we want to bring in to the loving heart of God. We're here to be subversive in the society that we're in, which is why we asked some good questions last week when those hoping to be our MP were upstairs in the hall. We want to be subversive. We want to challenge what's going on in our society, but we also want to be redemptive. We want to be a healing force. We want to be a force that restores the full humanity of those around us. That's what Jesus was about. And we come here to deny ourselves daily so that we can serve others in the name of Christ. Are we ready for it? Are we ready for the current that lies ahead? I remember hearing a story Clive Calver told way back on a, a couple of days conference, actually up at 174, I think it was still a church at the time, way back at the end of the 80s. And uh, he came over to talk to the Board of Social Witness, and he completely transformed the thinking of what the kingdom was in my life. But he started off with this strange story about um, a minister who was off duty, not wearing his collar, you know the way when I'm off duty, I don't wear it. Um, um, most of the time then. Uh, but uh, he wasn't wearing his collar and he went into this motorcycle showroom because he was into motorcycles. And uh, the young guy came up to try and sell him a motorcycle. He was from Balamina. He could see the commission. And he said, sir, there's a motorcycle over here that's just made for you. Oh, sir, have you sat on that motorcycle and you got it onto the autobahns of Germany with no speed limit and you pulled it back to its full speed. You would think I knew something about motorbikes here, not a thing. He says, you will feel the breeze blowing through your hair even with the helmet on, sir. This seat is just molded to take your posterior. This is the bicycle for you, sir. What do you do for a living? 
The man says, well, as a matter of fact, I'm the minister of the corner church up at the end of the road there. And he says, oh, sir, sorry, I apologize. We do have lawnmowers out in the back showroom. <laughs> or Gordon MacDonald talking about how their son bought them a present one Christmas. He hadn't done it for many years. And when he did decide to do it, he bought them a ferret. And after the ferret had eaten most of the furniture in the kitchen, they decided they need to take the ferret back to the wild. But when they took the ferret back to the wild, they realized that it was so tame that it wouldn't survive in the wild. And he asked about the church. Are we a tame ferret that wouldn't survive in the streets around Fitzroy? Or does the people out there, when they hear who we are and what we are, say, oh, well, a slow plodding lawnmower would be far more your kind of thing than the excitement of a motorbike at top speed. The white water up ahead for the rafter coming down. This is dangerous territory. And why should we feel that it's going to be less dangerous for us? Yes, we're different than the disciples. We've got inside toilets. Most of us have two or three. We have cookers. We have trains, planes, and automobiles, and most of them can go unless there's a, obviously a volcano in Iceland. We have entertainment. We have leisure time. The disciples would never have understood the molly cuddling of the society that we live in. But are we any less challenged about taking up that cross and denying self? Is it any less of a challenge to live this dangerous life that we're about to remember? This is not a comfortable table. This is a table where we remember the danger that it is to bring God subversively and redemptively to the world that we live in. This is the table that asks us, it's not safe. It's dangerous. Are we up for it? Do we get it? I think it was maybe Albert who said, um, was it in, maybe in committee, he quoted Lawrence of Arabia. They have to, they're all very careful now what they say because I quote them on a Sunday. Isn't that great? Um, but uh, he quoted Lawrence of Arabia. Let me give you the full quote. This, therefore, is a faded dream of the time when I went down into the dust and noise of the eastern marketplace, and with my brain and muscle and sweat and constant thinking, made others see my visions coming true. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their mind wake up in the day to find that all was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dream with open eyes and make it possible. We need to be dreamers of the day. And that will cause us to be dangerous. A Canadian singer called Bruce Coburn in a song called Lovers in a Dangerous Time talks about how to love the world, to bring the heart of God, to bring people to the heart of God is dangerous. When you're lovers in a dangerous time, sometimes you're made to feel your love's a crime. But nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. We've got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. And this is what the disciples were being challenged to. Jesus was saying to them, oh, you believe I'm Jesus? You'd sing those hymns. You would give money into the offering plate. You'll come on a Sunday morning and some on a Sunday night. You believe in me? Well, do you get it? Are you up for it? Because the journey that we're on is to be lovers in a dangerous time, to be dreamers of the day, to become dangerous men and women, to follow Jesus 
by taking up our cross daily and following him. Are we up for it? Let's pray. Our God, sometimes we're confused or not sure where we're heading, and that's all right because these disciples, a fair way into this journey with Jesus, didn't seem to know either. But we want clarity, Lord, and we want to hear your voice, and we believe your Spirit is with us to give us your voice. And so we really long that you would show us the way ahead as a congregation. What do we need to do in order to move forward? As the session, the development team leaders begin to think, what is it we need to move forward? We pray that all of us would be involved in that same discussion and that same strategy. Lord, we want to be a subversive body of Christ in this country, and we want to be redemptive in reaching out to the people around us and restoring them to the humanity that Jesus came to restore them to. And so we pray that we would be dreamers of the day. We pray that we'd be those who would kick against the darkness till it bleeds daylight. We pray we would be those who would deny ourselves daily. What does that mean, Lord? We pray your Spirit would show us. In Christ's name, amen.